Welcome to the Ivy Church podcast. For more podcasts and information about Ivy Church, go to ivychurch.org. It is great to be with you guys this morning. First of all, well done for making it here, especially if you were affected by the half marathon. I know Rick Bedeser is actually running the half marathon. Rachel, have you heard from Rick? Is he completed? Right, okay, okay. It's not the ideal weather for it, but well done for getting here. I know a few people are trapped by it, so, uh, but it's great that everyone uh, can be here this morning. So, as John said, we are in a series this morning called All About Jesus, and often we think, well, that's a strange thing, because surely we've always been about Jesus. Yes, we are, but we're hoping that in this series, we just get to discover in a little bit more detail the character and the person of Jesus, and I feel it's a really timely series for us as a church. And if you're, if you're new to, to Ivy, then, uh, or if you've been with us a while, you will know that every year we have a word for the year. We have a year of and this year for Ivy is our year of hope not that we're not hopeful at other times but in particular we felt that this word was really going to steer us and guide us in the year ahead and um, I know for many people and in various ways that this has been a tough year uh, due to things happening personally things have happened in our church things that are happening in the nation and it almost looks like is this really a year of hope and I think the truth is the, the, the antithesis of despair which is what many people are feeling at the moment is hope we need hope more than ever but the only place that we're going to find a hope with any substance the only place we're going to find a hope that lasts is in Jesus and so, as I was praying about this morning, um, I was reminded, it's one of my old kind of favorite choruses uh, of a hymn, and the lyrics of this, it says, turn your eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will go strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And I love that because it's an amazing truth as we get a full-on glimpse of who Jesus is. It begins to put everything else into perspective. Not that we kind of uh, are blue sky thinkers and do away with what's actually happening, but when, when we begin to encounter the risen Jesus of who he actually is, it means that we can be a people who, despite what is going on around us, despite our circumstances, you can be in the middle of the storm and still stand firm and still have hope because of who he is. So with that in mind, let me pray. <clears throat> Maybe just in the quiet, why don't you just posture yourself in a way that says, God, I, I, wanna, I want a fresh revelation of your son, Jesus. Jesus, we invite you to speak. We invite you to show yourself in a in a deeper way, we could never get to the bottom of who you are, your greatness, your goodness, and your faithfulness. But whatever the condition of our hearts and our lives right now, we lay them bare and we say, God, would you, would you come and give, give us what we need? Would you fill us with your life and your power and your spirit? Would you reveal that side of your character that we need right now to know as truth in our lives, whatever it is that we're, we're going through? So Father, would you give us ears to hear what you're saying to your church? And give us a fire and a boldness to obey the things you've called us to do as we leave this place. In Jesus' name. Amen. Awesome. 
I think that it's pretty fair to say that names do not quite carry the same significance as they once did. Now, I know this, that people choose names, and we've gone through this recently with choosing India's name, people choose names based on a meaning, because meanings are important, but it's very rare that I will meet someone and they will get to know who I am simply by my name. It's very rare that someone will go, Peter, your name's from the Greek, and that means rock, you must be a hardy chap. That's not what happens nowadays so much. We get to know a person because of what we see in their conduct and their behavior, or we get to know someone because of what someone else tells me about them. Is that fair to say? So a funny example of this going wrong. Um, Lauren, as you know, well, many of you know, she works for a charity called Tear Fund. And three years ago, she started this job and she got signed up to a new team WhatsApp group. And on there, they discussed work and discussed everything else, fashion. And it's, it's mainly ladies in this team. And so there was lots of talk about fashion and, and all sorts of things. And we recently had got a new addition to the family, which is our dog, Graham. He's a sausage dog. And Lauren was talking lots about Graham. And she'd say things like, our training's going really well with Graham. He, he's doing really well. The next day, oh, Graham's now sulking at my feet because I, I, I've told him off. Uh, and then the next day after that, she'd, said, she'd say something like, I'm really angry at Graham. He's just in a poo in the kitchen. <laughs> Two weeks after this... One of Lauren's work colleagues came up to me and said, Lauren, I'm really sorry, but for the last two weeks, I thought Graham was your husband. <laughs> Which was not true. Graham was our dog. Um, but uh, it wasn't too long ago that your name would communicate a lot about yourself. Um, there were some really strong English names which back in the day would tell you what someone's occupation was. So if you were a Cooper, you would make, anyone know? Barrels, that's right. If you were a smith, you would be a blacksmith. You have bakers and thatchers and masons. And by your name, it would tell me something about who you are, what you do. It would tell me a little bit about your family history. Um, but if you go further back than that, to first century Palestine, when Jesus walked the earth, a name carried even way more significance still. It was an indicator about a person's identity, who they were, their, their family background, which in that day was a, was a big deal. And so, uh, with that being said, we know that Jesus was called Jesus. And, and his name simply means uh, rescuer or deliverer. But in the Bible, Jesus was also known by many other names and titles, and Jesus also gave himself many different names and titles. And so, if names carry great significance and weight back then, I think it's important that we pay attention to sometimes what these names mean, because it helps us give a greater insight and understanding to the person and the purpose of Jesus. And so, the name that is used of Jesus more than any other in Scripture is Christ, hence why most people will call him Jesus Christ, so much so that many people think Christ is his surname, which is not true. Christ is a title, and it simply means Messiah or Anointed One, and we actually looked at this a couple of weeks ago. But it's interesting to note that although this is the most common name used for Jesus, Jesus never actually used this name of himself. Lots of people said, are you Christ the Messiah? And he, he said, yes, I am. But he never actually used that name of himself. The name that Jesus used more than any other to describe himself was the title Son of 
man. It was used over 80 times in the New Testament and only three times did someone other than Jesus use this title. And so if Jesus used this more than anything else, then I think it's important that we take note of what this actually meant. And I bet you've probably read the Gospels and you've probably read this and thought, oh, son of man, great. And we've not quite fully given attention to what it means or why Jesus chose this title for himself. And I think... Most people would understand uh, that when we think about Jesus walking on the earth, he had two natures. Have you heard the idea that God, he is fully God and that he is fully man? And so in, in Colossians 2.9, we read this verse. It says, for in Christ lives all the fullness of God. So he's fully God, but in a human body, he is fully God and fully man. And the general understanding of this title, son of man, is that he is fully Human. In fact, in the Greek, the, the, the meaning simply means in the likeness of humankind. In other words, he's simply a human, and which is amazing in itself. And let me know, I'll let you know, that will preach in itself because there's something beautiful and hugely significant, the fact that Jesus was fully human. He isn't a God who is far off and distant in heaven, removed from the reality and the struggles and the suffering here on earth. He came and he experienced it in his in its fullness. Um, the Bible says, and Susan quoted this earlier, that Jesus was familiar with suffering, which to me is good news that my God isn't removed from the things that I'm going through. In fact, he chose to come and he endured the worst of human suffering, the worst that humanity has to throw at us. Jesus suffered it all and the cross is a beautiful reminder of God coming close to us as a man to experience the worst that we could go through. And whilst that is all true, whilst the title Son of Man refers to him being fully human, there's also a greater meaning than that. And in classic Jesus style, it's very subversive under the radar. And so this morning, I want to unpack in a little bit more detail about the kind of deeper significance of what Jesus meant when he called himself son of man. But it involves digging a bit deeper. So are you prepared to do that this morning? Great. Come on. Okay. So we're going to start by digging into Mark 14. You might want to turn to it in your Bibles or the word's going to be on the screen behind me. Starting at verse 55, we read this. The chief priests and the whole of the Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but the statements did not agree. Then someone stood up and gave this false testimony about him. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands and in three days will build another not made with hands. Yet even their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is the testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. I just want you to imagine the setting for a moment. This is like a courtroom type scene. And you have a bunch of angry, frustrated, and I believe intimidated religious leaders who are trying to falsely accuse Jesus. And uh, the truth is they cannot find any fault in Jesus until they question him about his identity. They read, then we read this. Again, the high priest asked Jesus, are you the Messiah, the Son of God, the blessed one? I am, Jesus said. And here's the key. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? 
They all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists and said, prophesy. And the guards took him away and beat him. In this moment, as Jesus claims his identity before the religious leaders as the Messiah, the one hoped for and longed for for years and years, this is the moment that leads to Jesus being sentenced to death. But the thing that really frustrates the religious leaders is when Jesus uses this title, he says, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Now this morning, I'm going to make an assumption about us here. And that is that you all have appreciation and great taste in quality film and cinematography. And so, if I was to say to you this quote, may the force be with you, you automatically think, if you said Star Trek, the door is there. No, I'm joking. Star Wars, yes. Some of you might roll your eyes. Some of you will be filled with excitement and giddiness because you love Star Wars. Um, But what I want to say is this, on its own, and without knowledge of this film, this quote has very little significance or meaning to you. However, if you're familiar with the story, then when I mention this quote, then it brings to mind a much greater narrative and story in which this quote finds greater meaning. Does that make sense? Brilliant. And so, in this moment, before the religious leaders, Jesus is doing just this. By using the title, Son of Man, for those people in the know, he's beginning to open up a far greater narrative and story for those in the know will have awareness of. And so, to fully understand the significance of the title Son of Man, we have to take a look at the larger narrative that Jesus is making reference to. And to do that, we have to go back to the Old Testament in the book of Daniel. And some of you may know the story well, but we're going to jump to uh, Daniel 7 in just a moment. But a bit of background. Daniel was basically an Israelite prisoner of war. He was forced to live in the oppressive... um, uh, empire of Babylon and work for a violent ruler who pretty much destroyed Daniel's home. And in Daniel 7, he has this crazy, some call it a cheese dream, but it was a prophetic dream. It was a crazy prophetic dream. And in this dream, we read that he dreamed about four beasts, these hybrid-like monsters which rose up out of the sea. Uh, and they, each of them was more terrifying than the one before. And they seek dominion and leave death and destruction in their wake. And what we find out a little later in Daniel 7 is that these, these four beasts represent four violent and oppressive rulers and empires that are going to rise up on the earth. But as well as representing physical rulers and empires that will rise up on the earth, these images of beasts also represent an important theme that runs throughout the whole Uh, entire narrative of the Bible and that theme finds its beginnings in Genesis so just for a moment we're going to step back a little further into the book of Genesis so when God created the earth he created humankind and and the beautiful thing about when he created humankind is he 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 created us and we've made reference to this already this morning to be his image bearers which I think is pretty amazing Genesis says it like this he said he created them male and female in the image of God he created them I mean isn't that great your purpose before anything else was to bear the image of God 
I think that's pretty amazing. Um, but you and I, humankind, we're the pinnacle of God's creation. When he created everything else in creation, he said it was good. When he created humankind, he said, you are very good. We're the best thing in God's creation. And he created us to bear his image. But not only that, he set you and I, humankind, apart for the privilege to rule over creation in partnership with God. We were originally meant to rule side by side, and the Bible says to have rule and dominion over all the living creatures, or to maybe use the language of Daniel, to rule over the beasts of the earth. Now, beasts is just another word for animal. Now, if you know the story, tragically, this partnership between God and humankind, it didn't last long. You see, humankind was deceived by dark spiritual forces, an enemy. We call him the devil. And it's interesting that in Genesis, this enemy comes in the form of a beast, or more specifically, a serpent. And this serpent tells and tricks humankind, Adam and Eve. He says that we don't have to just settle for ruling as partners with God, that we can become something more, that we can become something greater, that we can, in fact, rule on our own terms. And humankind chose to believe that lie. And as a result, humankind turned away from God's rule and chose to choose thing, to do things their own way. Humankind forfeited their destiny as those who would rule in partnership with God, uh, ruling over the earth and embrace self-destruction and looking to their own wisdom and to judge right from wrong by their own standards. And I think, just look at the world today and look how well that's working out for us. It's not so great. God had this amazing plan. He said, look, rule in partnership with me. Do things my way. You'll experience the fullness of life. But we forfeited that when we chose to do things our own way. And rather than humankind being the ones who would rule over creation with God, humankind was overcome and now ruled by a power we call sin. Now, sin is basically... The word means to miss the mark, to, to basically to do things our own way. Instead of ruling over, we now were ruled by an oppressive dark power we call uh, sin. And in keeping with the same language of Daniel, often in the Bible, sin is likened to kind of beastly-like behavior. And so often sin is described as... Um, uh, I lost my notes now. As a creature waiting at the door, crouching, waiting to devour. And so instead of humankind being partners with God and ruling over the earth, humankind becomes separated from God and we now become like the beast. Now, if you ever watch a wildlife program, I love a bit of David Attenborough. It's great. But what animals do is they, they fight each other to gain hierarchy and power. And rather as ruling over the animals, we now become like the animals and we vie for power. We fight each other. It's a very dog-eat-dog world. I mean, just look at the political situation in the UK. We can see that kind of outworking in everyday uh, life. But not all hope is lost. Because you see, right at the very beginning, when all things fell apart, when sin entered the world, God had a plan that in the future, a human will come who would overcome and crush this serpent, the enemy, and overcome the beast that we call sin. 
And throughout the Bible, we see how God raises up great men and women, each one both heroic yet profoundly compromised, like people like Abraham and Moses uh, and some of the prophets. God raises up and demonstrates the amazing potential that humankind has to be his image bearers, but at some point, they all fall short of God's standards and they're overcome by sin and doing things their own way. And so out the Old Testament, humankind is waiting for the one that God promised who would kind of help restore the partnership once again with God. I hope we're tracking. I've said a lot, but I'm going to surmise it in two sentences. Sin is really bad and caused the world to be, world to be full of darkness. And no person since has ever been able to restore the partnership that was lost in the beginning. Are we tracking? Brilliant. We're going to get to the gold very shortly. So we're going to go back to Daniel. So Daniel has this dream about these terrible beasts representing empires, but also representing sin. But then we read this. Against Daniel 7. Daniel reads this. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. You see, in his dream, Daniel gets a look into heaven, and there he sees God seated on a throne, and he has the title, the Ancient of Days. This is God the Father, resplendent and glorious, taking his rightful place as ruler over the whole earth, and he's surrounded by tens of thousands of angels. Then Daniel notices that there's more than one throne. God is on his throne, but there's an empty throne next to God's. Now this is the throne that we forfeited when we chose to turn and do our own way in the garden. There's an empty throne. And no one has ever since been able to overcome sin and take back the throne that we forfeited when sin came into the world. But in his vision, Daniel, Daniel, we, we, oh, we read this. We read that God condemns the beasts to destruction and strips them of their authority. And then we read this. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me, get this, was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached... Uh, He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations of people of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will never pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Daniel sees this human figure, one that they call the Son of Man, who is exalted to rule beside God. The Son of Man is raised up alongside and and he restores the partnership that was lost in the very beginning. The reign and rule that we had right at the very beginning when God created the world was won back by this Son of Man. This is no ordinary human that Daniel is dreaming about. This son of man came to do what no human has ever been able to do before, to take on the beast, to take on sin and overcome. Hence why Jesus chose this title for himself. He is making the claim that he is the son of man, that he is the one that is to take back the throne that we lost, to take back power and authority, who's going to rule alongside God because he could do what we never could, and that is overcome sin and death. 
And whilst Daniel's dream is prophetic, we see how this plays out in the life of Jesus. You see, when Jesus walked the earth, yes, he was son of man. He was fully human. He was tempted in every way that we were tempted, only that the fact that where we give in, Jesus stood strong. But not only that, Jesus went around teaching people how to overcome the beast that we call sin. He taught people to take a stand against it. He went around freeing people from sin. But the best news is Jesus just didn't take a stand against sin. He defeated sin. He overcame it and he did it by giving up his life. Now from the outside, if you're not a Christian, the cross looks a little bit strange. It looks like a moment of defeat. Because you see, the cross demonstrates the worst of humanity, the worst of sin, this beastly behavior that we call sin. But rather than a moment of defeat, this was in fact Jesus' moment of defiance. The cross was Jesus' moment of glory, to which many people ask, how can death be a moment of glory? You see, Jesus was willing to give up his life and he let sin do its worst. And on the cross, Jesus took all of the sin of humankind on himself. And everything else that sin brings with it, sickness, disease, addiction, guilt, shame, brokenness, oppression. And he went to the grave with all of that. But you know, the good news is, and most of us here will know this, that sin and death and everything that goes with it couldn't hold him there. He rose again to demonstrate that he has victory over brokenness and sin. And so Jesus' execution was in fact his exaltation. Hence why the empty cross for us is a symbol of victory. Nowhere else do you see people carrying a symbol of execution around their neck, but we do because it's a symbol that Jesus has overcome. Jesus has done for us what no one else could ever do because he is the son of man who has taken his rightful place next to the father, who reigns and rules with all authority over sin, over death, over sickness, over disease, over over war and conflict. Isn't that good news? Later in Matthew 28, we hear Jesus declare these words, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And back in Daniel, uh, we read this. He, the son of man, was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and all people of every language will worship him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Jesus now has all authority. And let me ask you this. If Jesus has all authority, then what does that say about the enemy? He has no authority. Jesus has all power and all authority. Uh, um, The enemy does have some power, and the only way that the enemy gets his power is the way that he did right in the beginning. He gets people to believe a lie. Every sin that we commit, every, every, every consequence of brokenness is because people choose to believe a lie. I'm going to choose this way is better than God's way. I'm going to choose to, 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 to do that rather than do something God's way. We're choosing to believe a lie. And the only way the enemy gets his power is to believe a lie. Because when you believe a lie, you empower the liar. That's the only way the enemy gets his power. But the good news is he has no authority. Jesus has all authority and all power. 
And Jesus extends to us an invitation into a new way of living, one in which we can overcome sin and brokenness. We have victory, and this sounds odd, but we have victory over sin by dying. As Jesus went to the grave, so we can put to death those things that hold us back. We're talking, Susan and George are talking about prisoners being free and things that are oppressive and crush and bring down. We can bring that, take those to the grave with Jesus, but knowing that he's overcome and so we can have a victory and we can have freedom in Jesus. Jesus has all authority and all power but do we sometimes forget what is available to us? God has made what is, what is true for Jesus available to us. I want to tell you a story just to finish with. Um, back in 2012, um, a U.S. homeless man was found frozen to death under a bridge. And he'd obviously been living rough for several years. He was in a terrible way when... Um, they found him. Obviously, he was he was dead, but they, they they knew he'd been living a tough life for many many years. But what surprised the authorities more than anything else when they found this man, it, what, he he died as an heir to a fortune of three hundred million dollars. And when they found the man frozen under the bridge, they found a. a a check in his pocket for a significant amount that the authorities said could have changed the course of that man's life forever. He could have had a house for himself. He wouldn't have had to, to work. And yet this check remained uncashed in his pocket. He could have been free from poverty and homelessness. He could have avoided the tragic fate that he suffered only if he'd have claimed what was available to him. And I say this because often as followers of Jesus, we can, we're called to live as kings and queens, to reign and rule with God because of what Jesus has done. But we can often live like paupers. We can live like prisoners enslaved to sin and circumstance. Why? Because we don't realize what Jesus has made available to us. He is the son of man who came and did for us what we could not do for ourselves so we could gain back what we lost in the garden, to reign and rule with God, to know God, to live free from sin and death. And this morning, I just want to give us, I know there's been a lot of content, but the thing that I really want to get to, Jesus wants to bring freedom and he wants you to recognize the authority you have to take a stand against sin and the things that, that, that cause brokenness, the things that cause you to be a prisoner. And so with that said, I'm gonna invite Peter up and I'd just love to invite you to stand and I, I'm just gonna pray for us in a moment and invite us to respond. At the end of Daniel 7, we read these words. It says, the beast... His power will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. This is what Jesus has done. And then he says, then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be handed over to the holy people of the Most High. That is you and I. You carry an amazing authority, but are you aware of it? I just felt this morning when I was praying that Jesus wanted to bring a sense of freedom to uh, some people here this morning. Um, and maybe there are some of us who we're living captive to sin. It might be that there are just patterns of behavior in your life that you know aren't as how God would have you live. 
and you feel enslaved to that. Or maybe it's a way of thinking. Maybe it's uh, anxiety, stress, or worry, or an area of unforgiveness. Maybe it's an addiction of some kind, but there's something that keeps you captive. But you do not have to let this rule you. Maybe fear rules your life. You know, uncertainty breeds fear. And at the moment, there is so much uncertainty about in the nation. But maybe for you, you're facing uncertainty with your finances. Maybe you're just really worried about the state of the nation. You know what? God's not worried about Brexit because his is a kingdom that will never, never end. And he has authority and all power. But maybe for you, it's a fear about your health or your future or your home. But some things are keeping you prisoner. And what I would just love to do, just in this moment, if there are things that you can name and things that you know which feel like they're keeping you prisoner or there's a way of behaving or a way of thinking that is, is just not how God would have you live, just name it before God and say, you have all authority and all power. And so God, I put this under your feet. I lay this at the cross I want to see, see these things. Would these things die so that I could live in the power of the resurrection of Jesus? That I could be free from that? Maybe you just want to name that thing. And just in your mind, just put it at the feet of Jesus and say, I don't want this anymore. I want to claim your authority. I want to be free from this. So Jesus, we invite you to come and do what we can never do for ourselves, and that is to bring freedom. That your life and power may be our life and power. Father, we thank you that you reign, we thank you that you rule, and we just give you control of our lives right now, over every part. God, we just want to declare freedom for people this morning who are desiring and just wrestling to be free. We don't have to wrestle because you have already won the battle for us. All we have to do is submit to, to who you are and what you've done for us. And we do that right now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more podcasts, go to ivychurch.org media.